Well, are you all ready to start? Yeah. No? Okay. So, you know, several weeks ago when we kind of took a list of different topics you wanted to cover, one of them that you had that I had written down was distinctives, um, Baptist distinctives. And so tonight we're going to start kind of a series about what it means to be a Baptist. So somebody give me some ideas in your mind. What does it mean to be a Baptist? So you are sitting right now in a what is known as a Baptist church. So what does it mean to be a Baptist? Good food. Good food? I was so about to say that. Okay. Can't date. Can't, can't date. You can't smoke or chew or goes with girls that do. So. Be baptized in water. Be baptized in water. All right. What else? Security of the believer. Security of the believer. Okay. What else makes you think is a distinctive or something that is a distinction for Baptist? Music. Music? Okay. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ? Okay. Missions. Missions? The Bible. The Bible? Okay. Invitation. Invitation. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe, like, maybe, let me drill it in a little bit closer. What sets us apart from other religions or denominations? I feel like so, it's because it's we're the closest, closest to God's word in our okay. study. Okay. Baptism. Baptism. Immersion. Yeah. Immersion. I immersion. Okay, because I could take you, and I'm not saying your answers are wrong, but I could take you to churches that don't have Baptist in the name, that have similar music, that teach Jesus Christ, that might even teach the security of the believer. I mean, there's a lot of similarities that you could come from another church, and you could walk in, and you wouldn't know there's any difference between this church and that church if there wasn't a difference in the name. Make sense? Well, that's the way it should be, right? Well, I'm not... Yes and no. I feel like Baptists used to be, not so much nowadays, but more the conservative, I mean, black and white is what the Bible says. Okay. It's nowadays. In King James, it said John was a Baptist. Okay, and the King James said John was a Baptist. Okay. One body. One body. One faith. Okay. Historically, I've been told by one who studied church history that originally Baptists were Calvinists. Okay. And most people Calvinist. Calvinist? Calvinist. Okay. Okay. So So this this is not a new question. So just to show you that if you say, well what makes Baptist churches distinct from other churches. These are just a sampling of some of the books that talk about the what they call distinctives. Um, this is Baptist Foundations, um, written from some guys out in Washington, D.C. Erwin Lutzer wrote about the different doctrines that set us apart, whether it being Baptist or whether it being the different denominations and religions. Um, this is an older church that talks about the principles or the distinctives that set Baptist churches apart. And here's a couple other ones. Particularly, this one talks about Southern Baptist and the distinction between Southern Baptist. My point of bringing this up is there's a couple of dangers that we can come into when it comes to what they, the word distinctives. Some people might hear that and take a judgmental approach to say, well, what are they doing wrong that we're doing right? And the whole idea of thinking about distinctives or maybe what sets us apart as a Baptist church versus another church in town, not meant to be judgmental, not meant to have an attitude of superiority that's saying we're better and they're less, nor is it to have an attitude of inferiority to say, well, they are better than us. So I don't want you to walk out of here with this attitude, well, we're better than the person down the street because we think this and they think that. But at the same time, I think it's helpful for us to be reminded or even be challenged to think about what sets us apart 
from the church down the street. Well, what, what is the difference that is there? Why are we different? And what makes us different? And what are some maybe uh, unique distinctions that separate us one from another? What is the, the movie that's out that I've, I was asked about at lunch today? Jesus Revolution? The Jesus Revolution. What is that? The story of Greg Laurie? Is that right? Okay, so Greg Laurie um, out in California has done some crusades out there. But if I remember right, he started off in Calvary Chapel. So somebody may ask, well, what is the deal? What's the difference between Calvary Chapel and FBC Wellston? Or like the Gillen Tynes, uh, spent a lot of time in the Vineyard movement. What would be the difference between the Vineyard and FBC Wellston? And sometimes we start to struggle with, well, they're different names. Are there distinctions that set them apart? Now, I'm going to tell you my personal, my personal conviction is, is there are some distinctions that are biblical distinctions that set us apart that I support. There are other distinctions or traditional distinctions that set us apart that I think can come and go. And there's other ones that just because I think it is in our sinful nature is we want to always find reasons to divide. And so we're always looking for reasons to argue about something or split over something. So there's some distinctions that really we believe the same thing. And there's other things that are biblically different opinions, different ways of interpreting Scripture, different ideas of reading Scripture, if you will. So a lot of these distinctions will come down to we look at the Bible and we read it in two different ways. Now, I'm going to make an argument. I want to make a case for why the Baptist church reads it this way. And my aim through this is not to say we're better than them or not to say they are wrong and we are right, but simply to say the reason why we hold to it at this family of faith is because of our understanding of this way of looking at Scripture. Okay? So if you say, well, tell me then how that differs from other ones... that's nearly really not in the purview because it's not the goal to sit here and, and try to tear down everybody else. More so, let's understand why we believe what we believe so we can have greater compassion and we can have greater understanding and we can be more articulate in being able to explain why we hold to what we hold. Now, there are a lot of people today that are in churches that really don't maybe completely, they can't completely explain what all the beliefs of their church are. So here at FBC Wellston, we adhere and support the Baptist faith and message of 2000. That is a statement of faith, a confession of faith that was put out by the Southern Baptist Convention in the year 2000. It was revived. It is which edition of the Baptist faith and message? Third, okay, it's the third edition. All right, so you had, so this is the third time it has been revised. When you look, and you can just, you can just do a search for BFNM 2000, and you can so you can see it. But within the, that article, that that statement of faith, there are how many articles? Does anybody know? Okay, so there's 18 articles that cover different topics, whether it is what we believe about God, what we believe about the Holy Spirit, what we believe about the eternal security of the believer, what we believe about the family, what we believe about Scripture. So there's 18 different articles that explain this is what we believe and why. And Scripture references are there. So that might be something good to think, hey, if I'm going to go to a church, and I'm not just saying to this church, I'm saying if you go to any church, ask them, What do you believe? And show me what you believe and why you believe it. Because it doesn't matter what church you go to, even if you go to one of the churches that say, oh, well, you know, we are non-denominational. They may not have a name, a denominational name in the name of their church, but they're going to adhere to some doctrinal beliefs. So, I think, if if my memory right, probably Bridgeway and New Church probably would have considered themselves non-denominational churches. But they're still going to have a leaning, and they're still going to have something they believe. So maybe they don't take on a denominational nomenclature or a name like Baptist, but they're going to still have a set of beliefs. And so I encourage anybody, when you're looking at a church, whether it's this one or another one, to ask, what do they believe? Why do they believe it? And can you agree with why you believe what they believe? The reason why... um, 
I attend a Baptist church is not because of the fact that that's the only denomination out there that I think that believes in God. It's not that's because that's the only group of people out there that I think believe in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not because that is the only group out there that I believe that are saved and going to heaven. The reason why I attend a Baptist church is because the way that I understand Scripture, the Baptist on the whole, their statement of beliefs, their doctrinal stance, I am mostly aligned. I'm the most aligned with the Baptist of any other denomination that's out there. Does that make sense? So that is why I, that's why I am not ashamed or embarrassed to say I am a Baptist. Because I, the way that I understand Scripture, that most closely lines with where I'm at. So if I was going to say, you know what, tomorrow we're going to go and look for a different church, I'm not so much worried about what the name on the sign says as much as what does the church believe. Because I can take you to some Baptist churches in the county of Lincoln or in the state of Oklahoma that have some real different approaches to interpreting scripture. So just because it says Baptist on the name doesn't mean it's all the same. You know, maybe 50 years ago you were traveling with your family and you were on vacation and you would look at the phone book. Um, that's a that's usually a compilation of books with some names and numbers inside of it. But you would you would look at a phone book so you're out of town and you would just find, you know, let's say you're 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 let's say you're Baptist and you're just looking for the Baptist church in town and you go to that Baptist church in town and you just assume that they're all the same. Same thing with Methodist same thing with Church of Christ, same thing with Assembly of God, whatever. Nowadays, it's not that way because there is a wide variety of what people believe and why they believe it. So tonight, I'm just going to start off so and, and look at maybe we're going to spend a few, several weeks talking about what makes us distinct as a church. Why we believe what we believe. So what we're going to do is we're going to start tonight because of the idea of Baptist. We're going to look at this picture of baptism. You and I would probably be very surprised if we took a poll this morning the variety of views on baptism that were represented this morning. And I'm not saying they were bad. I'm not saying they were wrong. I just think that sometimes we just assume that everybody has the same opinion as you do. And when we think about that room that was there this morning, there would be a wider variety of views than you and I may think about when it comes to baptism. And there are many people that for a long period of time, when you ask them about baptism, they just assume that, well, that's just what you do. You walk down there as a young child at VBS, and you say a prayer, and you sign a card, and then you get wet, and that's just part of the process. And yet, there is something very distinct about Baptism, especially if you're going to be a Baptist. So the question that we're going to try to work through tonight is, what is baptism? And is baptism biblical? And we may just assume, some of you in this room say, well, of course it's biblical. But if someone said, well, prove it, why it's biblical, how would we go about that. Because my aim is not to say, well, we're going to compare and contrast and try to put down everybody else by saying, you know, let's let's set ourselves apart by telling about all the things they do wrong. But let's be able to explain to people, this is why we believe what we believe, and this is where we're at scripturally. I hope it's, I hope I don't embarrass him, but Mr. Chad Payton grew up in a church that they had a very different view about baptism. And, and, and there are some churches out there today that have a very different view. In fact, some of them even think that it's wrong to be baptized. So it's a, it's a question. It's a question that you may not struggle with, but there's probably people that you know that struggle with this question. And we need to be able to articulate what is baptism and is it biblical. So we're going to look at it in three different ways. We're going to look at the picture of baptism, we're going to look at the purpose of baptism, and then we're going to look at the practice of baptism. Alright? The picture, the purpose, and the practice. So, let's start with the picture. Let's, let's look scripturally what it says about the picture of baptism. Where we see the examples of, scripture, of scriptural baptism in the Bible. So can anybody take a stab where, and I'm specifically thinking about the New Testament, where do we see baptism begin in the New Testament? Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, that's right. So in Matthew chapter 3, what happens? 
John's baptized, Jesus was baptized. That's right. So John the Baptist came on the scene. And who was John the Baptist in relation to Jesus? He was a cousin. Okay, so John the Baptist is the forerunner. He is fulfilling that type of Elijah. He wasn't Elijah in the flesh, but he was fulfilling that prophetic role as Elijah. And so he is there in the scene. And John is um, practicing a baptism, not for salvation or not in Jesus Christ, but practicing a baptism as an act of repentance, an act of cleansing themselves from their sins against God. Well, Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew chapter 3 and right before he begins his earthly ministry because you know in Matthew chapter 4 he's going to do what? Temptation. So he's going to be sent out into the wilderness for how many days? 40 days. days, And he'll be out in the wilderness and be tempted. So before this time of temptation comes as a kind of a beginning point of his ministry, in Matthew chapter 3, you have the baptism of Jesus. So Jesus comes to John the Baptist and John the Baptist says, no, 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 you should baptize me. And Jesus says, no, it's right for you to baptize me. And so he goes down there. Uh, This is uh, verse 15 of Matthew chapter 3. Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw a Spirit of God descending like a dove, and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You'll see a parallel account of this in Mark chapter 1, and verses 9 through 11, as well as Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. All three places are parallel passages talking about the baptism of Jesus. So, when you're thinking about baptism and saying, what is baptism? But more specifically, is baptism biblical? We have a picture. We have a picture where Jesus modeled and Jesus gave us the example of himself being baptized as a demonstration of his submission to the will of God. Okay, so you have the picture of baptism in the Gospels. Where do we see the picture of baptism begin in the Acts of the Apostles? Or the Acts of the Disciples? So in the book of Acts, where do we first see the picture of baptism show up in the book of Acts? Uh, That's not the first place. That is one place. Do what? 122. What does it say in 122? Beginning from the baptism of John. Okay. Alright. Well, he was, that's Peter, Peter speaking, or yeah, Peter speaking there, but the, the, the practice of the, the picture of them being baptized. What? Okay. Alright. So you have a picture there where they talk about um, being baptized right there. Also 122, they're talking about the idea of baptism. You get to chapter 2 and verse 38. The Holy Spirit has fallen at Pentecost. Peter's preaching. Obviously, God is moving. And the people are going, what should we do? And what does he say? Verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41. So those who received his words were baptized, and there and they there were added that day about three thousand souls. So we see this picture of the disciples practicing this picture of baptism. You see that in Acts one. You see that in Acts chapter two. Then you get over to Acts chapter eight, and this is where Ron and I are going to have fun, depending on your translation of scripture and uh, verse thirty-seven, I think it is. So uh, so you're, this is where you would have fun because. You get over to Acts chapter 8, and that's where you have Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Right? Ethiopian eunuch sitting there in the chariot. He's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. The Spirit prompts Philip and says, go talk to him. He goes and talks to him. He explains to him what he is reading. And it says there, um, there in Acts chapter 8, verse 36, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Depending on your translation, some of you will have a verse 37 there that Philip will say, he will go on, nothing, you know, as long as you believe in Jesus Christ, you may be baptized. And then you get to verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Give you one more where we see 
the disciples baptizing. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Peter is at the house of Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile. And there were many in the circles of the Jews that did not believe that the Holy Spirit and the gift of salvation was available to the Gentiles. They believed that it was only for the Jews. So they didn't think there was any use in going and telling the Gentiles about Jesus and there would be no way that they would get saved. So Peter is there in Joppa at the house of Simon the Tanner and Cornelius sends some guys to Peter and says, I need you to come to my town there in Caesarea and tell us the message that God has given you. And that's where you see, you remember the sheet that comes down out of heaven and the God speaks to Peter and says, rise, kill and eat. Don't call unclean what I call clean. So then Peter gets up and goes with them. He enters into the house of Cornelius and he starts telling them about Jesus. And it says there in verse 47... Well, let me back up a little bit. Verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So you have the picture, the model, and the example of Jesus. This is just a little sampling of the picture that we have of the model and the example from the disciples. But then also, if you turn back to Acts chapter 9, we also see a picture of baptism through the life and the ministry of Paul. So Paul is on the road to Damascus. At this point, he is a lost man, a zealot for the Jewish faith. He's on the road to Damascus to find people that are of the way. That is what they called those that were followers of Jesus Christ. To arrest them, to drag them off into prison, and to persecute them. Along the road, Jesus Christ appears to him in the cloud. He is knocked to the ground. There is a conversion experience that happens. He gets up. He's so blinded that he can't see. He's led by the hand on into the town. And Ananias, a follower of Jesus Christ, is dispatched to go to Straight Street and where Paul is at, where Paul has been, to lay his hands on him so he may regain his sight. So, verse 17 of Acts chapter 9, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came and sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are sitting there in jail in Philippi. The earthquake happens. Doors sling open. They they don't move. The jailer gets up, preparing to kill himself. Paul yells out, we're all here. The jailer comes in, falls at his feet, trembling. Takes Paul and Silas out of the jail cell. Takes him to his own house. And at his own house, that is where Paul and Silas then share the message of Jesus Christ. In verse 30. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And it says in... Verse 32, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and was washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. Another example, another picture of Paul and baptism in the New Testament. One last one on the, on the subject of the picture of baptism we see in Scripture is Acts chapter 19. And in Acts chapter 19... Paul makes his way down to the city of Ephesus. And when he enters into Ephesus, there had been preachers and teachers that had come there before him. But as he gets into Ephesus, he asks them the question, verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that it is the Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Verse 4, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord 
Jesus. So if we ask ourselves the question, is baptism biblical? I think that I can make a case that we see the picture of baptism in numerous places throughout Scripture. We see Jesus being baptized and modeling baptism. We see the disciples in the Acts of the Apostles practicing the picture of baptism for people that believed. We see Paul practicing and picturing baptism in his life and in the life of the people that he touched. So we see the picture of baptism throughout Scripture. So if we ask ourselves the question, is it biblical? I would argue, and I do argue, that we see it as a picture and it should be considered to be biblical. Now I realize I don't know everything. My kids think I know everything, but I don't know everything. And so I realize there are other there are other religions or other churches out there that would say, well, what about this and what about this and what about that? The point tonight, like I said, is not to try to discredit or run down every other religious group that's out there. Rather to say, when I come to Scripture and I see these pictures of baptism, I say... I am on good grounds if I am baptized or if I encourage other people to be baptized based upon the evidence of Scripture. So that talks about the picture. But then we think about the purpose. What is the purpose of baptism? Cleansing. Cleansing? All right. Also a picture to other believers that you are going to follow Christ and for the church to hold you accountable as to the profession of faith that you've made. Okay. 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 Also an act of obedience. All right. Before we go there, where does it say that we need, because we believe in full submersion. Uh-huh. None of that, none of that ever said full submersion. We're going to get there. Okay. We're going to get there in a few moments. We're going to get there. Where do we get that? So I don't, if, you can't, if you didn't hear it, Mark said it represents the death, burial, and resurrection. So there's a phrase that I will use. That, you, that I'm not the first one. I just copied off somebody else. So when you go to baptize someone, it is my privilege to baptize you on behalf of the church in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Him in death, raised to walk in newness of life. Where do we get that from? The cross. Okay. From the pastor. Okay. So, so Romans chapter six. Romans chapter six. So we have to answer your question, Harold. We have one example of where Jesus was baptized, but we don't ever get exact language of how Jesus did it or what Jesus said, why he was doing it. It tells us in the Gospel of John that Jesus did baptize, but at the same time, it doesn't really say that Jesus never gave a class on how to baptize. You go down to the seminary at Fort Worth, and when they built their new chapel building about 10 years ago, in the front entryway, there is a baptismal pool in the front entryway of the seminary. And they built it there, one, because, hey, we're Baptists and we believe in baptism by immersion. But another use of it was, is when you go through the pastoral ministry class as a seminary student, there are a large number of seminary students that have never baptized anybody. So part of the assignment in the class is there is one day that we do baptisms. So we all show up for class that day and the whole object of the class is we all gather there at the front of the chapel and one by one you go in there and you are practicing baptism because sometimes we just think well there's nothing to it until you get ready to do it and there's a whole lot of ways to do it because sometimes when you're taking someone down if their feet aren't set and their feet come up and their head go back I mean there is there is ways that you can really embarrass yourself or embarrass other people in the baptismal act and so I will I will tell people this is how we're going to do it this is how I do it and I'll tell them this is where your feet are this is how your hands are if you're a guy and you're baptizing a lady you got to be very careful in where how you hold the individual when you're taking them down because you don't want to be inappropriate and you don't want to do anything out of order, right? So, I mean, there is a method to it. So they had a whole class where all these young pastoral ministry students would come in and so, you know, we would all take turns and you would go down there and you would baptize that guy, then you'd get out and that guy that just got baptized would baptize the next guy. 
And that was the whole point in teaching you how to do it. Because there's a lot of questions about, well, then what is the purpose for all we're doing? So we may know that we do it, but why do we do it? Because Jesus never gives us a primer on, do it like this. I don't see anywhere in Scripture where John the Baptist said, this is a set way to do it. Which is why today you see a wide variety of methods and means of baptism. So, in John in Romans chapter 6, we get a picture into the purpose of... A baptism. Now, Shelly said it a minute ago. One of the phrases that I will use, I think I may have stole it from her, but it's an outward, what baptism is, it's an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. So, just last weekend, talking to some students, talking about baptism, and I tell them, it's an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. It's a testimony of your belief in Jesus Christ. You see this, I see this in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Paul is writing, um, talking about sin, talking about the death that we inherited through Adam, as far as sin coming into the world through Adam. That's verse 12 of chapter 5. Chapter 6 and verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we continuing in sin that grace may abound? So the idea is, well, if we're already under the grace of God, if the, if the blood of Christ covered our sins, then we can just sin, 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 because it doesn't matter, we're covered. So the argument partly was, the more we sin, the more grace we receive. So we want to receive more grace so we can sin. Or, you know what, I will do this and then I'll ask for forgiveness later. I mean, there's all these false ideas running around, right? Kind of goes in the line of, you know, what is it? Tell me. Ask for forgiveness than permission. Uh, yeah. Better to ask for forgiveness than permission. I mean, it's just this idea that they had some really false views of grace. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what Paul's saying is he's teaching them that when you are baptized, it is a symbolic act. Just as Christ died on the cross, was buried in the tomb, and rose from the dead. When we go through baptism, we are symbolically portraying we died to ourselves, we died to the old nature, we died to who we were in our sin and our carnality, we put to death who we were, and we were raised to walk in the newness of life through the blood of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So you say, well, why baptism? Baptism just seems so odd. I mean, why would that be the symbol? But Romans 6, Paul explains that just as Christ died to self, Buried and rose again, that is part of the picture and the purpose of baptism is the old self going down and the new self coming up. Does that make sense? So when we think about the purpose of baptism, the purpose of baptism is a public declaration of a spiritual change. Now let's move off into some weeds here. Does baptism save you? No. You sure? Yes. Okay. So, are you any more saved before you're baptized versus after being baptized? No. Okay. So then why be baptized? I agree. I agree. But, you know, there, there's... but. If you're already saved, so you get, you know, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you repent of your sins, confess Him as Lord, you're saved, right? Period. I'm saved. So then the question might be, well, then why do I need to go through this baptism Baptism if I'm already saved? Right? Okay, what did you say, Mo? It's part of the great And we're, we're going to get there. Yeah, that's right. So... But, but we, at the same time, you know, we need to be compassionate. And we need to be understanding when people ask these kind of questions. You know, we need to be able to articulate when they say, what is the point? What is the purpose? I don't see a big need in it. Right now, we have a lot of adults. 
a lot more than you may realize. We have a lot of adults that were baptized, and I put that in quotes because they were baptized before salvation. Does that make sense? So they were coaxed into vacation Bible school or something when they were a young kid. They walked the aisle, said a prayer, got baptized, really didn't understand what was going on. Then later on in life, then they realized, hey, I know what this salvation thing is. Then they make a decision to trust Jesus Christ, but now they're stuck in a bit of a quandary because they say, well, I was already baptized as a child. Do I need to be re-baptized? But there's a quandary. But yes, the first time you got wet. But there is a huge quandary. Um, I, I can talk about him now. But like my father, um, he was he was baptized before he got saved. And so my dad and I would sit there, and he would say, "I'm not getting rebaptized." I said, "Dad, you don't have to get rebaptized because you never got baptized the first time." <laughs> and he and I would lock horns because I would say, "Dad, the whole picture that we see of baptism in Scripture is you are baptized after the moment of salvation. So if you get baptized before you're saved, that's not being baptized. That's just getting wet. So the whole picture we see throughout Scripture is that you are baptized after." Salvation. Tracking with me? And why? Because how are you going to picture the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, your salvation testimony, I was once lost, I died to myself, Christ saved me, and raised me to walk in newness and life. How are you going to picture that if you were never saved when you went through that? So this whole thing is connected in how it flows together. So you have the picture, and then you have the purpose. What is baptism? Baptism, we're going to see in a minute. But baptism is this idea that I am making a public declaration. This is who I am. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And I demonstrate that by doing an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. It's a public declaration of a spiritual change. So there's a purpose for why we baptize. It's not just because it's an old tradition passed down and we just say, well, let's just keep on doing it. It's, it matters. So let me then quickly move to, we talked about the picture, we talked about the purpose. Now let's talk about the practice. Because the question is, why you do it the way you do it? Which I think gets to your question, Matt, of why do you immerse? Well, the idea of immersion goes all the way back to what the word is. So the word baptism is a... Transliteration. Now what a transliteration means is that if you go back to the Greek word, which is baptizo, there really wasn't an English equivalent. So instead of translating it, they just used that Greek word and put an English sounding name to it. So it comes from the Greek baptizo, and so they just have adopted it to call it baptized. Does that make sense? Make sense? So, like in Spanish, padre is father. They didn't do that. So they just said, they just transliterated it. So, baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo. And if you look up the Greek word baptizo in a strong concordance or in a Greek dictionary, it means to dip in or underwater or to immerse. Pull out a concordance of your New Testament. The word baptizo happens or is listed 77 times in the New Testament. 28 times it is translated to baptized. 36 times it's translated to be baptized. 12 times it's translated to immerse. So the question comes, then why do we practice baptism the way we do? So in this church, when you're baptized... You're immersed into the water. And when I say immersed, I mean you go all the way down and you come all the way up. Now we're not super legalistic about making sure that every single hair or fingernail on your head goes under. It's baptizing a person in a church in Ardmore. And we got ready to have the baptism. And one of the pillars of the church walked up. This is when we had the baptistry. Walked up and stood at the side of the baptistry to watch me baptize this individual. Never had had that happen before. <laughs> Baptized the individual. Later on, I asked that gentleman, what were you doing? He said, I wanted to make sure that every piece of that person, every hair, every fingernail, every skin cell went underwater. And I said, why? He said, because if it doesn't all go underwater, 
it doesn't count and you'd have to redo it. <laughs> now, now we get ready to do a baptism in this church and one of you all get up and you come stand because you're saying, hey preacher, we've got to make sure that we can't have a, a fleck of hair that doesn't get underwater. I'm going to ask you, please go sit down because you're missing the point, alright? It, it's missing It's missing the spirit of what we're doing. Baptized another individual one time and they didn't like water, they were scared of water and when you went when I went down with the individual, um, they put their hand up and grabbed kind of the, the rail, okay? So when went down and I got the water all the way up to their knuckles but I didn't get that far I'm not going to pick them back up and go oh doesn't count you had your fingers you had your fingers touching we got no the spirit the intent was there that we're going to go all the way down in the water and we're going to come all the way back up so you may say well Spence okay so we're just doing that because the word baptizo no we're not doing it just because the word baptizo. We're doing it because that's the picture of the model we have. You go back to Mark chapter 3. You go back, or, sorry, Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 2. It says Jesus went down into the water and he came up out of the water. When Jesus died on the cross and was buried in the tomb, did he just go halfway in the tomb? Did he just go partway in the tomb? Did they just sprinkle some dirt from the tomb on his forehead? He went all the way in the tomb. Now that sets us apart in many ways because there are other there are other traditions out there, other religions, other teachings, denominations that practice baptism in different ways. Whether it's sprinkling the forehead, whether it is anointing you, um, there's lots of different methods that are out there. But here in this tradition, we believe that the picture that we have, the model that we have, the example that we have, is that he was baptized. He went down into the water. And he came back up. And that's what we seek to practice here. Now, there may be contexts like when this facility was built. I was not here. But I, best of my understanding, it was not built to be a permanent sanctuary. It was built to be a multi-purpose building with the fellowship hall with a new sanctuary to be built later. Which is why I don't think the, sanctuary, the, the baptistry is a fixture. They got a sanctuary, they realized, hey, we got to have a baptistry, so we moved in this portable baptistry. It's functional. But yet, when we baptize someone, they come in and they sit down, and you go back, but then there's a bit of an issue because now they got to walk across a wet uh, tile floor with wet feet. I mean, there's just some logistical challenges in baptizing somebody. So, whether you're standing or whether you're sitting down, it really doesn't matter. I've seen contexts where they just had a, a, a cattle trough out there and they put water in it. You got down in the cattle trough and you just sit on your rear and they leaned you back that way. Is there something wrong with that? No. It's the idea that we are trying to as closely symbolize the picture we see in Scripture. Does that make sense? So that is the, the, the practice of baptism is through immersion. Now going back to what Mo said, say, okay, so why else do we practice baptism in this way? This takes us all the way back to Matthew chapter 28. Probably what I consider to be the best proof text or the best just settles this in my mind when it comes to baptism. You can see the Great Commission. Before Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, He's looking at these disciples. And what does He tell them? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there's several different things that Christ commands the church to do. To go make disciples. What is that? Going telling people about Jesus. Seeing people come and turn by faith to Jesus Christ. Not only that, but then seeing them follow in baptism and then discipling them. That's verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. So we think about the picture, the model, the example we have. We think about the purpose of why we baptize and we think about the practice. Part of the reason why we baptize is because we have been commanded to in Scripture to baptize people. That's why we do it. It's not because we say we're going to put a hoop in front of you or we're going to put a, a, a hurdle that you have to jump over. The, the idea is, is that we're doing what Jesus told us to do. Tell people about Jesus and lead them to faith in Him. And then encourage them and teach them to follow in obedience to Him. And then teach them, verse 20, on how to walk out their faith in Him. That's what we've been commanded to do as a church. 
So this is what then sets us distinctive from maybe other traditions or other religion. Because we believe that baptism is a testimony of salvation. Baptism is not a prerequisite for salvation. Baptism doesn't save you. I remember watching um, back when Duck Dynasty was in their heyday. And I remember watching uh, Willie Robertson talking at his uh, university alma mater. And he was talking about being up in a hotel room and talking to a buddy and leading his buddy to the Lord. And then filling up the bathtub and doing the baptism right there. And I remember people like, oh, that's so cool. That's so awesome. I disagree. The reason why Willie did that is because Willie Robertson and the whole Robertson family believes that unless you get baptized, you're not saved. So he didn't do it. He didn't do it for a buddy just so he could have a good story. He did it because if he didn't do that, he wouldn't be saved. So there's other churches. There's one church in this town right now that their baptistry stays full all the time because if you walk the aisle, the deal isn't sealed until you get wet. So that's a distinctive that sets us apart. Not one of those things that we look down on judgment. Not one of those things that we say we're better or we're less than. This isn't, a, this isn't a means to give us a stick to beat somebody. But we understand that this is what sets us apart or sets us distinctive is that we believe that baptism is a testimony of salvation. Another thing that sets us apart is that we hold to that baptism is a step of obedience. We talk about being the first step of obedience. Why? Why do we say the first step of obedience? You've just been saved, and so you've just started a new life in Jesus Christ. So okay. Okay. That's the first thing Jesus did before he started his ministry. Okay. It's also in Matthew 28, the next step, right? The first step is to make disciples, see people come to faith. That's the first step. The second step is, is to see them walk out their obedience and demonstration of the outward, the inward manifestation, or the, what did I say? The outward demonstration of an inward transformation. That, that's, so we, that's why we use the language of the first step of obedience. Now, does that mean that if you have somebody in your life that says they're saved but not baptized, then they're not being obedient? I'm going to say that's between them and God. So let me give you an example. We have young people that go to church camp. We have young people that are at an event and they make a decision to follow Christ. If I don't have confidence that a young person knows why they're being baptized and what baptism is, then I don't encourage them to be baptized immediately. Eli made a decision um, with his mother on the back row of the church down there at Zanis. It was years before he was baptized. Not because I, as his father, said, well, you, don't, you have to reach a certain age or you have to do a certain thing, but I want him to understand. Now, I'm not going to prevent anybody, prevent anybody from praying a prayer. Somebody says, I want to be saved, and they said, I want to pray to ask Jesus into my heart. I'm going to pray with anybody. But I want to make sure that before you're baptized, you understand why you're being baptized, what it means to be baptized, and what this picture of baptism is. So, there's some people that I think that they're just still wrestling with what does obedience look like? And you know, if that person is saved, that person is saved. I want to encourage obedience. I want to encourage faithfulness. And I'm never going to tell them, oh, well, baptism isn't a big deal. Baptism, you can take it or leave it. It's, no, it, it, it's, it's not a obedience or disobedience issue. But at the same time, I want to be very careful. Are you going to sit down? Okay. I want to be very careful that we just don't start beating people over the head. Because different traditions, different backgrounds can mean different things for different people. So that's why we need to be loving and encouraging and just letting people know. This is biblically the picture we have and we want to encourage people to step out in their obedience and their faith. So we set, we're, we're distinctive as a Baptist church because we believe that baptism is a testimony of salvation, because we believe it's the first step of obedience in the faith, and because it's a public demonstration by immersion. And when we baptize, we do not baptize in the name of an individual. When we baptize, you have an agent of the church. So whenever I baptize somebody, I do it on behalf of 
Jeff B.C. Wellston. I don't baptize as Spence McConnell. You will see other traditions out there that will baptize based upon the name of a person. That gives me EBGBs. That gives me a lot of EBGBs because we are. It is the church that baptizes the believers, not the person that baptizes believers. So there's some distinctives, and there's some distinctives, especially when it comes to baptism. Now, we end on this. Why does this distinctive matter? Unfortunately, in 2023, we can just assume that some of these things may be legalistic or some of these things may be steeped in tradition. And sometimes we forget our church history. So, the Reformation with Martin Luther started when? Can anybody tell me? Yes, sir. 1517. 1517. When in 1517? What? No. 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 October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther walked up to the door um, in Wittenberg of the the, the castle church, the door, the front door of the church, walked up in Wittenberg, Germany and nailed a piece of paper onto the door. It was 95 theses. Now in that context, in that setting, he wrote this in Latin. He didn't write it in German. He wrote it in Latin. And the purpose was, is that time, the front door of the church was used like the, the community bulletin board. So if you wanted to put notices or postings or events, you would post it on the, the door of the church. And so he walked up and he put it on there because there was a select group of people, only the scholars knew how to read Latin. And so what he was trying to do was he was trying to spark a debate. He wanted to debate with the other people about how are we saved? Is it by grace through faith alone or are you saved through the work of the Pope? That was at the heart of what he was talking about. Now there's 95 different points that he was taking issue with with the Catholic Church at that time. So he wrote it in Latin. He posted it. There were some other students there in the school that read it, thought this is pretty salacious and this this is really be some good social media fodder. They took it, translated it in German, and then it just exploded, okay? So 1517, you have the Reformation getting sparked off, having to do with salvation, and especially the role of the church when it comes to our salvation. That's happening in Germany in 1517. Later on, in 1525, in Zurich, Switzerland, there is a guy by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. And Ulrich Zwingli takes the position of the church there in Zurich, Switzerland, and he commits himself that the only thing that he is going to do is to preach the gospel. He is not going to preach the Catholic Church doctrine. He is going to preach the gospel. And as he begins to preach the gospel, there is a group of individuals that start reading their Bible. See, up until that time, the majority of the Bibles were written in Latin, and the only people that could read Latin were the priests. In fact, they even have stories about Bibles that are chained down to the pulpit because they didn't want the common man to have the Bible, which is why Jerome and Tyndale and Wycliffe, that's why they were so heavily persecuted, because the church did not want want the common man to have a Bible in their common language. We take that for granted. So Zwingli is preaching the gospel and he's preaching what the Bible says about salvation. There's three primary men. A guy by the name of Felix Mons, a guy by the name of Conrad Grable, and a guy by the name of George Blarock. And they are there in that church under Ulrich Zwingli and they start listening to what he's saying about salvation by grace through faith. They're reading their Bible. They have a copy of the Bible in German and they're able to read and they start coming to this picture of baptism. They start having questions and they're asking Zwingli, but Zwingli is willing to hold to the line of the Reformation when it comes to Martin Luther and salvation by grace through faith, but he still hasn't fully settled on where he's at when it comes to baptism because in the Catholic Church in that time you were baptized as an infant. Why were you baptized as an infant? Because of the question about what happens to those children that die in their infancy. There was a high mortality rate amongst children and so you had parents coming and saying if my four year old dies what happens to him? Well they didn't know how to answer that. So the solution they came up with as an infant you are baptized or sprinkled or dipped. You put them on the bird bath if you will. You dip them down in, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the method for it. And that way they were brought into the church and then as they reached the age 
stage of accountability. They go through confirmation and they affirm their faith. Well, these men are sitting there going, that's not the picture in Scripture. That's not the practice of the early church. That's not the practice of Paul. That's not what Jesus commanded. And so on January 21st, in 1525, there were about a dozen men that trudged through the snow to the house of Felix Mann, Felix Manns. And as they got there, they were reading Scripture together and they were praying. And it said that after the prayer, George Blarock stood up and besought Conrad Grable for God's sake to baptize him with the true Christian baptism upon his faith and knowledge. And when he had knelt down with such a request and desire, Conrad baptized him, since at the time there were no, no ordained minister to perform such work. And after this baptism at the hands of Grable, Blalrock proceeded to baptize all the others present. This was the spark of what is known as the Anabaptist movement. Anabaptist comes from the name. Anna means re, obviously Baptist. So they were considered re-baptizers. And so from the middle of the early or the early 1500s, there arose an entire movement known as the Anabaptists, and you'll find them in church history, that advocated and practiced baptism as a demonstration, a testimony of their salvation. Now the Catholic Church saw that as being heretical. And the Catholic Church was to have none of that. Not only did they not like the people being able to read the Bible in their own language, but they didn't like the idea of people not towing the line of their Catholic doctrine. So they began to persecute them and they began to lash out at them. And many Anabaptists were killed because they were practicing Baptism. Can you just imagine? We practice baptism in this church. Can you just imagine the convention coming in and saying, we are going to persecute you because of your practice. These men are just saying, this is what the Bible says. Then you rock along there. That happened in 1525. Through that movement, there was a young theologian by the name of Balthazar Hubmeyer. Trained in the seminary, very well known, very, very knowledgeable in Scripture, and he began to be an advocate for the Anabaptist movement. And in 1528, he was arrested. And they said, You are baptizing people, practicing this Anabaptism, you're baptizing people, you're advocating for it, and they tried him for heresy against the church. They put him on the rack. They put him in the stocks. They tortured him for numerous days to get him to recount. And he would not recount. So they took him and they tried him. And they found him guilty of heresy against the church. A crime that was punishable by death. So on March 10th, which this anniversary is coming up. On March the 10th in 1528, they brought him out of his prison cell. And they marched him to the public square there in the city. And they tied him to the stake. They loaded up the wood around his feet. And then just for added measure, they took gunpowder and they rubbed it in his beard. And then lit the pile of wood. And history records that while he was sitting there, and in the process of burning to death, his wife is in the crowd exhorting him and encouraging him to remain faithful all the way to the end. He didn't die because of a crime. He died because of his conviction of biblical baptism. He died because of his conviction to stand with the Word of God. Three days later, they took his wife and they put her on a boat and they took her to the middle of the Danube River and they tied a large stone around her neck tied her hands and her feet behind her body and said since you are an advocate of this baptismal picture we're going to let you be baptized one last time and they pushed her out of the boat and she sunk to the bottom of the river and drowned I tell you this 
Because this picture and this idea and this teaching of baptism matters. It matters historically. It matters biblically. And it matters in the world today. Because there are men and women, and not just because there's been men and women, but there have been men and women that have come before us that were willing to die because of their beliefs in what the Bible teaches about baptism. And my concern is that we, as a church, have a tendency to marginalize or minimize some of the importance of some of these biblical teachings, and it's to our detriment. And it's not to our benefit, and it's not to our advantage. But there are things that are clearly taught in Scripture that we don't use to say, well, if you don't do it, you're bad and you're wrong. We just simply say, we're going to do it because this is what Scripture tells us and teaches us to do. So I hope that we understand that this idea of these distinctives that make us who we are are not trifle, they're not unimportant, but they matter. They matter. And the only, well, I shouldn't say the only reason. I think one of the main reasons why we're here tonight identifying as Baptist is because there were people like Felix Mons and Conrad Grable and George Blarock and Balthasar Hubmeyer that were willing to give their lives for what they believed in the Bible. And I hope, I hope, 500 years later, if Jesus hasn't come back yet, that some of our convictions and some of our fundamental beliefs will be benefiting the church 500 years later as we're being benefited today. So these set us apart. These make us distinctives. And uh, this is why we believe what we believe. Questions? Pushbacks?